And it is a pleasure to be here at New Life Coolangatta. Um, a bit about me. Uh, I am married, been married for almost nine years uh, to a lovely woman named Sarah, who is not here this morning uh, because she is at home with our three young children who will not survive a 30-minute drive here, a couple hours with two services, and a 30-minute drive home. <laughs> so she opted to stay home and watch the kids uh, this morning. They are aged three, one, and six months. Yeah. My, my, my one-year-old's almost two. They're all exactly 18 months apart from each other. So May, June next year, baby number four has got to be coming. I'm putting my money on it. You can put your money on it as well. <laughs> so I was in Texas for the last 10 years up until Christmas 2019 when I was blessed to be able to join New Life College as a lecturer in uh, biblical studies. A couple of fun facts about me. Prior to being called into ministry, I was a motorcycle mechanic. Um, I worked on Ducatis, Triumphs, and Suzukis. Yeah. We have a Ducati ride. Oh, we do have a Ducati ride in the back. What up? I need to talk to you afterward, mate. <laughs> it's been a while since I've touched one, but uh, yes, yes. Amen. Oh, I feel blessed, let me tell you. Um, and then uh, another fun fact, I'm an avid sumo wrestling fan. Fan, not wrestler. Fan. I am way too small, and there are no weight classes in sumo wrestling, so you can have an 80-kilo guy go up against a 200-kilo guy and, uh, you know, see, see who is flat on their back by the end of it. It's not always the big guy. Um, something else you might want to know about me is there is a lot that I don't know. There is a lot in this world that is very very mysterious to me. When I was a child, the Bermuda Triangle fascinated me because of its mystery. Ships go missing, planes go missing, people go missing, and sometimes they randomly come back a few years or a few decades later. It is a complete, even to this day, mystery to me. Uh, a more recent mystery is how COVID-19 came into existence. So some senators in the United States are, are trying to get some money to fund an a formal investigation as to the origins um, of COVID-19. Uh, the funding does not look like it's going to be given. For why, I don't know. Um, but uh, that remains a, a mystery to me. Uh, within the last eight years, two men have deadlifted. I don't know if anybody in here is a weightlifter. I used to be, not that you can tell, uh, because I uh, had three children really close and was working on a PhD, and so I shrunk and stopped working out. Um, but two men deadlifted 500 kilos. The first guy did 500, and the second guy, uh, about five years later, had to top him at like 501 uh, kilos. I do not know how a human being can lift that much. Now, if it's a mother and her child is trapped under a car, I get that. All right? I can fathom that, but if you're just going up to something that's 500 kilos and being like, watch this, man, I'm going to lift this thing, uh, I, just, I just don't get it. Um, and I don't get how life comes to a baby, life or sentience. I have three children, so I get how babies are made. Um, <laughs> but how does the spirit, life, sentience, you know, this is a big debate in the abortion uh, or a big topic in the abortion community. Uh, at least with that, that, that topic, when does a baby become a human? When is life, when does, when does life happen? There's a lot that's mysterious to me. Uh, not just to me. Uh, in the, uh, some of the biblical authors, uh, one of the biblical authors you may not know, Agur, the son of Yake. Uh, there's lots that's mysterious to him as well. If you see on the screen, Proverbs 30. I should open up my Bible to Proverbs 30. So most of Proverbs is written by Solomon. Chapter 30 is written by Agur, the son of Yaqeh. That's in verse 1. But look what he says in verses 18 and 19. Three things are too wonderful for me, for I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This world is full of mysteries. But there is one thing that should not be a mystery to those who know Jesus. There is one thing that should not be mysterious to anyone who claims Jesus as Lord. To anyone who claims 
the title Christian. And that one thing is the plan of God accomplished in Jesus. That should not be a mystery to any of us. Now, maybe it is to you. It won't be after this morning, um, but it should not be a mystery. So let me read our focal passage for this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. I don't know if you all stand for the reading of Scripture. I'd like it if you could, if you're able to, because um, this, this really is God speaking to us. So let's hear what he has to say this morning. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose or plan that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Yeah, let me pray and then we'll sit down. Heavenly Father, thank you for entrusting the revealing of your plan to the apostles, specifically this morning to Paul. For us who are unclear, make it clear. If the water is murky, Make it clear, Lord, if there are scales over our eyes, may they fall down so that we can understand your plan and give you praise and honor and glory and live in faithfulness, knowing that we are living rightly and in a way that pleases you and that is in accord with the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This is a dense passage, and there is a lot going on in this passage. And in case the introduction wasn't clear, we're going to focus on the mystery, but it needs a little bit of context. The first three verses especially of this passage are extremely confusing. I have what's called an M-dash after verse 1. It's just a really big line between the end of verse 1 and the end of verse 2. Paul says, For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he seems to switch topics completely. And some versions say, if, mine says, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. And I'm like, well, what is going on in this passage right now? Paul is, has uh, decided to pick up on a, he's gone on a digression. He's gone on a bunny trail and uh, he has decided to flip Topics. This is something I do frequently in class when I am teaching. Uh, and as Scott mentioned, he is in, uh, in class with me. He is a wonderful student. Uh, I'm very proud of how he is doing. I am, his, uh, his assignments improve every single time. Uh, he's an assignment every single week for the last three weeks. I finally gave him a bit of reprieve. And this message is not about Scott. 
But I went on a digression, didn't I? You can see how easily it is talking about digressions in Scripture, digressions in class, Scots in class, and the next thing you know, we are on a completely different topic. Well, just as I will get back to our topic at hand, the mystery of uh, the mystery which is now revealed, Paul gets back to his topic in verse 14. Uh, You see in verse 1, for this reason I, verse 14, for this reason I, he was about to say a prayer, which I believe, are you you preaching next week, Scott? Hey, Scott's going to preach on that prayer. (laughs) So it starts in verse 13, he cuts it off, he has a 13, a 12 verse digression, and he gets to it back in verse 14. So our real topic is in verses 2 through 13. And ultimately, what Paul is doing is he's telling the Ephesian Christians, don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged because of what I am suffering. And we see that in verse 13. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The digression came in verse 1 when he mentioned he was a prisoner. And so ultimately in this passage, he wants to encourage the Ephesian believers who may be disheartened because he is suffering a lot. In verses 3 through, uh, three through 12 are the reason they shouldn't lose heart. He says, assuming, many of your translations say, if I like if, because verses 2 and 13 is an if-then clause. If this, then this. If you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, and he assumes you have, which is why my translation rightly says, assuming you have heard of it. This is a rhetorical technique. Then, if you've heard of the stewardship God's given me, then, skip all the way to verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. That is the main point of this passage, ladies and gentlemen. Don't lose heart over my sufferings because God has made me a steward. And what we're focusing on this morning is what God, what stewardship God gave to Paul. And we find that out in verse 3. It is the mystery. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. We are going to discuss this mystery, which Paul does say in verses in verse 9 is the plan of God. Let me just read verse 9 one more time. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose or plan of God <laughs> um, that he's realized in Jesus. The mystery is the plan, or you could say the cosmic plan of God. And that's what we're going to focus on uh, this morning. And we're going to, Paul, Paul focuses on two aspects of this mystery. First, to whom has the mystery been revealed? And then second, what is the content of the mystery? Now, we need to know who it's been revealed to so that we can know whether or not we should trust what Paul is actually saying. Read with me again verse 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, meaning it hadn't been revealed before. This plan had not been revealed until God revealed it, still in verse 5, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This is why Paul calls it a mystery. Because up until God revealed it to the apostles and prophets, and he might actually be calling himself a prophet here, so it's either apostles and prophets or apostles and prophets. We're the same thing. Um, we're going to focus here on the apostles um, at least this morning. It had not been revealed to anyone prior to the apostles and prophets, including Paul, the least of all saints. Uh, Fun fact, by the way, whenever you read that term mystery in the New Testament, it will always be explained to you. It is always the mystery revealed in the New Testament, always. The scripture does not leave the mystery mysterious. 
It always explains the mystery. And so Paul says, this has been revealed to me and the apostles and the New Testament prophets. All right, Everybody in the New Testament. It was not revealed to anyone before Jesus. And it was revealed to him by God. By revelation, he says. And in another place, he says, by the Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Which is important because... What Paul is about to tell us is not his imagination. It's not his wish or desire of things to be. It's not what he has deduced or put together. He has not cracked the code of the Old Testament and figured out the mystery that was hidden and hidden inside of it. All right, some of us try to predict the coming of Jesus. Do not ask me when Jesus is coming, by the way, just because I studied Revelation. Jesus himself said he don't even know when he's coming back. Only the Father does. If Jesus don't know, Adam don't know. Let me just tell you that. And if Jesus don't know, anybody who tells you they do know, don't actually know. All right, so that's a side, right? There's another digression right there. We're going to have lots of digressions this morning. Hopefully we won't have many digressions this morning. No, this, is, this has been revealed by God. Directly by God to Paul and the apostles. So if I want to know the plan of God, if I want to know the significance of what God did in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and nobody really denies the death of Jesus, what is really denied is the significance and the meaning and the importance of his death, I need to go to the apostles. Is it any wonder... That every book in the New Testament is written by or closely associated with an apostle. An apostle of Jesus, not an apostle of the church. An apostle of Jesus, somebody directly commissioned by Jesus. Another favorite passage of mine is in John. Scott's familiar with this. I feel like I quoted every single class. (laughs) Just real briefly, John 14, 26 Jesus is talking to the 12 apostles. He says, The helper, who is the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The apostles have a special, unique ministry that you don't have and I don't have. And it is to reveal the plan of God, to reveal what was the mystery, what was mysterious to everybody, he says in verse 9. To bring to light, to enlighten for everyone what is the plan of the mystery which has been hidden for, the, for ages or hidden for eternity in God. You might not know what I'm about to tell you. I guarantee you Scott knows because, because he studied. For the last 200 years, there has been a concerted attack on the traditional authorship of every book of the Bible. For the last 100 years, sorry, this just fell off. For the last 100 years, there's been a concerted attack on the authorship of the New Testament. The majority, majority of biblical scholars today throughout the world deny that the Gospel of Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew, deny that the Gospel of Mark was written by Jean Marc, who was a friend of Peter and Paul, which, and, and that Peter had a hand in the writing of the Gospel of Mark. They deny that the Gospel of Luke was written by Luke the physician, the traveling companion of Paul. They deny that the Gospel of John was actually written by the Apostle John. Oh, by the way, they also deny that Luke wrote, wrote Acts, because Luke wrote both Acts, uh, Luke and Acts. They deny that uh, about 50% deny that Paul wrote Colossians. Uh, they pretty much all deny that Paul wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They deny that Peter wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter. They deny that Jude, the brother of our Lord Jesus and the brother of James, wrote Jude. They deny that John, the apostle, wrote the book of Revelation, the second John and third John. He may have written, he may have written uh, first John. They deny that Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, and you're wondering, what do they say about Ephesians? About 50% deny that the Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians. There is an attack 
which the attack on the biblical authorship of the biblical of the books of the Bible is not just an attack on who wrote it. It's an attack on where we go to discern the will of God and to understand what he did in Christ. And when you throw out the apostolic authorship, or at least the association with the apostolic authorship, of almost the entire New Testament, where do you go to understand the Christ event, the plan of God? Well, I'll tell you where you're not going. You're not going to Ephesians. Now, the irony is that if Ephesians wasn't written by Paul, he's pretty bold to say that, <laughs> that the, uh, the plan was that the mystery was revealed to Paul <laughs> and only 11 others. That's, that's, that's quite a bold statement. Uh, but the, the authorship, who wrote these books of the Bible, is very important. Now, I do believe that Paul wrote Ephesians, and I hold to the traditional authorship. But it is important for us to realize and to think about and to know, because you will encounter it. And although it might seem like something that's not very important, ah, God inspired all Scripture, who really cares who the author is? It matters. He inspired certain people. (laughs) He did not inspire other people to write Scripture and to reveal the message uh, to us. So, you're on the edge of your seats, and you're like, Adam, I know Paul wrote this. What's the mystery? I need to know the mystery. What is the content of the mystery? The content of the mystery is found in one verse, verse 6. And I, uh, I might have it on the screen. I, I think I do. I do. Verse 6 is on the screen. I do not usually preach with slides. Scott was so nice to give me the, the, uh, the, 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 the layout, the base print. I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to preach with slides this morning. You know, and then you forget what slides you made. It's, it's terrible. It's easy in class because you've got that little window you can look at and be like, that one's next. Verse 6. I mean, it couldn't be any clearer than this, could it? This mystery is. And now we get what the mystery is. The revealing of the mystery, by the way. This isn't what is mysterious. This is the revealing of the mystery. That the Gentiles, that is non-Jews. Are there any, are there any Jews or people from Israelite descendant in here? I'll put my hand down because I'm not. All right. This is talking about you. You are Gentiles. So this mystery is that Gentiles, you and me, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, there are three aspects to this mystery. Let me summarize the whole thing in a nifty sentence I have up on the screen, and then we're going to tackle each element, each aspect of this mystery. All right, to sum up, Paul is saying that God's eternal plan was to perfectly unite all people, that is the human race, all people, in Christ Jesus through the gospel in such a way as to eliminate rivalry, conceit, and dissension, and to promote perfect unity and harmony. Now, before you misread what I wrote, this is not saying that every single person is going to be saved. Okay? It's not saying every single person is going to be saved. Through the gospel, he says in verse 6. Through the gospel. All right? So anybody who believes in Jesus, that he died, that he's God, he died, he rose again, and he ascended, that person... This is, this is applying to you. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, which there are none here. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, which we all are here. This is the plan of God. So let's look at the first aspect. Gentiles are fellow heirs. And I've highlighted fellow heirs up there on the screen. So there's two questions that, we, 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 that, that, that should come to our mind. First, fellow heirs with who? Who am I sharing this inheritance with? I need to know, especially if I know whether or not I actually want the inheritance or not. And then an heir, obviously an heir is somebody who receives an inheritance. If I am the heir of my father, that means I get everything, everything that he, that he has. Back in Jesus' day, uh, you read this a lot in the Old Testament, um, even some in, in some uh, encounters that Jesus has. The firstborn son is usually the chief heir. The firstborn son receives everything. Now, a good father is going to give a little bit to, 
to the other sons. You have the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The younger son gets his portion, but the older son, he got a whole lot more. Esau and Jacob. Esau was the oldest. He was getting it all, folks, until Jacob tricked him out of it because he really, 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 well, he wanted it and he saw an opportunity. So, you know, why not? It's pretty easy. I can make you some food and uh, you give me everything dad has. That's a real great trade-off. Um, though in all fairness, I understand Esau's mentality. If I die, what, 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 I'm not going to get anything, so I need, I need some food. Maybe he was melodramatic. Maybe he'd just been hunting for three days and hadn't eaten. I don't know. I'm not going to guess. The point is, we want to know who we're heirs with and what the inheritance is. So let's tackle. We're going to tackle who we are heirs with first. Now, I know our natural tendency might be to say, because the term Gentiles is mentioned, and because the, the term Israel was mentioned in the previous chapter, uh, Paul says uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. I think that's really important here. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, um, having no hope and without God, we may be inclined to believe, all right, well, maybe we're fellow heirs with Israel. I do not think that is the case. So, good, good, uh, good methodology. You should go searching in your Bible for that term fellow heirs and just see what comes up. And, and I'm going to support this in more ways than one um, as, we, as we progress through the morning. But if you can bring up Romans 8, 16, through 17, there is only one passage in the entire New Testament, and this is written by Paul as well, so it's a good, a, good, uh, a good indicator that this is what he has in mind, where he says, with whom we are fellow heirs. Romans eight sixteen through 17 says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul's speaking about all those who have believed in Jesus, all right? We are children of God. And if children, then heirs. And now he, he clarifies what he means by heirs. Heirs of God and, here's that word, fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Fellow heirs with Christ. I am fully convinced that in Ephesians 3, 6, the mystery is that we will be fellow, the Gentiles will be fellow heirs with Christ. Now, Israelites and Jews are also fellow heirs with Christ if they believe in Jesus. But Paul has just said in the previous passage that God has created in himself one new person. A new person. He hasn't attached the Gentiles to the Jews, and said, oh, now you're now part of the Jews. No, he scrapped Jews, he scrapped Gentiles, and he made one new person in Christ. Jesus is the heir, is God's heir. He is the one who will inherit all things. And we have a clear, explicit statement stating, we who believe in Jesus, because we are children of God, we will be co-heirs with Jesus. Now that is amazing. And that is something definitely not revealed in the Old Testament. We will be co-heirs with the divine Son of God. I am going to hold off on the inheritance for a moment until we get to our, our third point. Co-heirs and everybody who believes in Jesus, who becomes a child of God, will be co-heirs with Jesus. You and you and you and you and you and you and me. And what this does is it changes our status. It actually equalizes our status. There is no more hierarchy anymore. If Jesus is the heir, God's heir, and we are 
co-heirs with him, on par, now we're not gods, all right, but on par in heirship, on par in sonship, on par in status, we are children, specifically sons of God. I think uh, Pastor Michael in his sermon on, first sermon on Ephesians made the point, sons is important because they're the ones who got everything. So we who believe in Jesus are sons, then rivalry is eliminated. And we see a good example of that rivalry, again, between Esau and Jacob. They were rivals because one was going to get a whole bunch of great stuff and one wasn't going to get a whole bunch of great stuff. He's going to get the leftovers. There is no more rivalry. If we were co-heirs with the Jews or Israel, they could say, well... You're still second-class citizens. It was still given to us first, and now we're really reluctant to share what God has given us with you people whom we don't like. Read any of the Gospels. They don't like you. <laughs> All right, The vast majority do not like you. It's the glasses, you see. <laughs> Rivalry is gone because our status is equal. Jews are no more important than Gentiles. Gentiles are no more important than Jews. And this transcends other cultures and nationalities and ethnicities and races as well. Whites are no more important than blacks. Blacks are no more important than whites. Australians are no more important than Americans. Americans are no more important than Australians. We're no more important than Chinese. The Chinese are no more important than us. If we are in Christ, our status is the same. Equal in status. So we're not just fellow heirs, but we are members of the same body. Members of the same body. So what is this body to which Gentiles are a part? What is this, 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 this new body? Now, again, we mentioned back in Ephesians 2.15 that God through Christ created in himself one new man in the place of two, or one new person, it's probably a better translation, in the place of two, resulting in peace, um, and that he might reconcile us both to God, that's that he's reconciling Jews and Gentiles, both to God in one body through the cross. What is the body? Well, Ephesians does answer that question for us a lot of times couple passages, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. I'm going to have these on, on the screen. See if you can pick out what the body is. And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus's feet and gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. His is Jesus. The church is Jesus's body. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, a real favorite passage of mine. And he, that is Jesus, you're going to ask, who are these he's and him's and hers and he's and him's and hers and his's and hers? Um, <laughs> it gets confusing sometimes. Um, and he, that is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. And so the context is, that's the church. Ephesians 5, 22. Uh, Michael got out of preaching this one at Rabina. He's got somebody else preaching this passage, by the way, so he didn't have to deal with that. And you can call him up and be like, ooh, I see what you're doing here, avoiding the controversy. 5.22.23, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. So... Back to Ephesians uh, 3, 3, 6, we are members, and the idea, it's, it's not conveyed in this translation very well, some other translations convey it really well, is that we are equal members of the same body, that being Jesus' body, which he defines as the church. So this body to which we've all become a part of is united with Jesus, it's his body, and he's at the head, he's the, he's the actual head of the body, um, and it's the church. And whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, you're all part of the same body. We have, we have, um, we, we, we like to distinguish what type of Christian we are so often. And I think this, plus other, many other passages in the New Testament, fly in the face of that. 
Um, you mentioned uh, what's going on in, in Israel at the moment, which really is uh, awful. But I hear frequently the Messianic Jews or Jewish Christians. And I'm like, no, no. Now, there is no Messianic Jew. There is no Jewish Christian. He's just a Christian. We're all part of the same body. Those distinguishing features are gone now. They mean nothing. Now, I'd, uh, they, they, mean, they mean nothing. Where I come from, uh, at least in Texas, we're really big on our denominations, by the way. There is not much, if any, cooperation in denominations. Billy Graham <laughs> got criticized a lot, at least from my denomination, which remain nameless because I'm not speaking glowingly of it at the moment. Billy Graham got criticized a lot for cooperating and working with other denominations. All right? I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Methodist, Christian, and so forth. I get the necessity, things aren't perfect, I get the necessity of denominations, and I'm not against denominations. But I am against if that becomes our, our identifying feature over the fact that I am a member, equal member of the same body with every single person who believes in Jesus. All right, there is, there is an equality. And this comes, this is also an equality with, with privilege. There aren't two bodies. Now, um, an American theology, uh, dispensationalism, both classic and progressive dispensationalists. So the, uh, the, there's a transition of being progressive, progressive dispensationalism, which is a lot better than classic dispensationalism, in my opinion. But it's not there yet. They believe there are two different people groups of God. God has two different Groups. There are the Israelites, the blood descendants of Jacob, and there are the Christians, those who have believed in Jesus. There are two separate peoples of God. And this flies in the face of that. There are not two separate peoples of God. If there are two separate peoples of God, then we are going to start warring with each other, okay? I mean, we already see it between different religions who think I'm the people of God and I'm the people of God. I mean, that's exactly kind of what's going on in Israel right now with Hamas is we're the people of God. No, we're the people of God and we're going to destroy you. That's probably an, that is a big oversimplification. Forgive me for, not, uh, for, doing, for doing that if, uh, if, I, if I misspoke. But we would war with one another. Absolutely. And some would think they're better than others and some would think they're worse than others and and that, that, that idea of privilege is not only gone because we're fellow heirs with Jesus, but it's gone because we're all part of the same group. And that group is in Christ. We're not joined to blood Israel. <laughs> all right? That would cause a lot of problems. We're all joined to Jesus. Finally, Gentiles are... Partakers of the promise. Partakers of the promise. What is the promise? Now again, good methodology. Search for the word promise throughout all of Ephesians. And I'm here to tell you that did not help me at all. <laughs> it did not help me. Um, the closest I got was the covenants of promise in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. But the focus is on covenants and promises sort of describing the covenants. I don't think this is talking about the covenants, plural. Because elsewhere in Paul's writings, he very clearly explains the promise. And we see that in um, the promise given to Abraham as interpreted by Paul. So Romans chapter 4, verse 13. I'm giving you time to find it too, because I'm going to find it. Romans 4, 13. Look what... Look what Paul says in Romans 4.13. It's a good passage to underline. For the promise, and by the way, this is repeated in Galatians. This is, this is not just in this passage. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be, and here's the promise. This is the definition of the promise. That he would be, and by association the heirs, heir of the world. The promise to Abraham and his offspring, and by the way, we, we read in Romans 8, uh, we'll, read, we'll read in a moment, we are Abraham's offspring, his children, um, if we believe in Jesus. Um, 
The promise to Abraham is offspring that he is that he would be heir of the world. That promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so we actually sang a song early, which was very theologically correct about something to do with Abraham. All I remember is like, oh, that's really relevant to our message today. Uh, basically, we are children of Abraham. You've got the children's song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. What do we do? So let's all praise the Lord. Right hand, le- left hand, right foot, left foot. Do a shimmy, turn around, Father Abraham. That's how that song goes. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> No, no, please don't. No, please don't. Uh, yeah, a children's song got really deep theology right. I'm, I'm just amazed. Um, it's in this passage that we are children's, uh, that we are Abraham's children, chapter four. But I'm going to go to Galatians simply because it is super uber 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 clear. Galatians three twenty five, twenty six, and twenty nine. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Obviously, through faith in Jesus. Uh, And then he talks about some implications of that, which are very similar to our Ephesians passage, by the way. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's, which makes you a son of God, then you are Abraham's offspring or child, heirs, there's that word again, According to the promise. There's that word again. So what is the promise? It is that Abraham's children will inherit. And look at that word in in, in Romans again. If you can flip back to Romans for me. Um, Will inherit the world. Not the land. All right. There's a very specific term for land. This is not land in Romans. The world. Which can also be legitimately translated the cosmos or the universe, in meaning every all create all all of creation. In fact, the word the Greek word is cosmos. It's one of the few we all know. Cosmos. <laughs> it means exact just about the exact same thing in, in in English as it does in Greek. Next week we'll talk about that passage. How did how did Paul get that? Is of the world. What is our what is the promise? It is that we will inherit everything. We will inherit everything, which goes hand in hand with being co-heirs with Jesus, who will inherit everything. Even Ephesians 1.22, and God put all things under Jesus's feet and gave him the head over the church. But still don't believe me? Revelation 20 verse 4, you knew I was going to Revelation. Come on, I got to sneak this in somehow. Revelation chapter 20 verse 4, I'll read the whole thing. I've just got the relevant part on the, <laughs> on the screen. And then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. My understanding of Revelation is this referring to those who believe in Jesus. They came to life, those who believed in Jesus, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I'm not here to debate the thousand years. What's important to note is that we reign with Christ, which makes sense because we're co-heirs with Christ, co-inheritors with Christ. So you see what's going on? Everything has moved away from any ethnicity, from any person. It doesn't matter if you're Gentile and whatever your history was. It doesn't matter if you're a Jewish person or Israelite and whatever your history was. Everything is now being done in and through Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 3, 6 at the very end. All of this, fellow heirs, same body, partakers of the promise, is in Christ Jesus. Referring to our union with Christ Jesus. And in, as it also refers to what God has done in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's the part where we come into. We have to believe the gospel. The gospel is how I, obtain, how I get in Christ and thus become co-heirs with Christ, become a part of Christ's body and inherit, become co-inheritors of everything with Christ. This is a pretty good plan of God, I must say. It is very beneficial for me. It is very beneficial for you. 
It is very beneficial for the Jew. It is very beneficial for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. And back to my, my brief, uh, my summary, which was Paul is saying that God's eternal plan was to perf- perfectly unite all people in Christ Jesus through the gospel in such a way as to eliminate rivalry, conceit, dissension, and to promote perfect unity and harmony. There is no place for conceit or being puffed up because now I am no better than you and you are no better than me. There's no place for rivalry anymore because we all have equal status. There's no point in competing with one another, obviously compete for love, but competing with one another for possessions and wealth and honor because not only are we seated with Christ, But we obtain, we get everything. What else is there? What else is there for me to compete with if I am co-heirs with Jesus, inheriting the cosmos with him, ruling equally with him? What else is there for me to fight with you over? I don't know the answer to that question. I can't think of it. I spent a little bit of time. There's nothing else. There is nothing else. And so God has brought peace to everyone, to the world. If only the world would listen to Paul and put their faith in Jesus. And even for us, it doesn't matter if you got looked over for the promotion. It doesn't matter if you got the job you wanted. Doesn't matter if you're poor. Doesn't matter if you've lived on the streets. Doesn't matter if you're still living on the streets. Doesn't matter if your car's a jalopy. We call them hoopties in America. Somebody told me what you call them here, but I can't remember. A hoopty, something that go, that fall, breaks apart every couple of weeks, <laughs> and it's just it, it's about to it's about to die. These things they don't matter anymore, because although I might suffer now, and I might have hardships now, when Jesus comes and establishes. His kingdom in its fullness on earth as it is in heaven. When that day comes, and it will come, I who am in Christ, that's when all these blessings, well, not all of them, but some of I've already got some of them. <laughs> that's when all the blessings will come in their fullness. I've got it all. So many things in this life that we worry about and we struggle over, it just doesn't matter anymore. And what God did, yes, it benefits you and me. And it benefits anyone who believes in Jesus. It wasn't even really for you and me. That's what's unbelievable about this. God has a higher, more lofty purpose. We're getting to the end. Read with me in verse 9. This grace, being called the minister of the gospel, has been given to Paul, verse 9, for the purpose of bringing to light or enlightening Now, bringing to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that, here's the purpose, so that, the purpose of the mystery, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now, 2,000 years ago when Paul penned this, and today, might now be made known that the wisdom of God might be made known to who? The rulers of God. And the authorities, not on earth, in the heavenly places. Those exact terms are mentioned again in Ephesians 6.12, referring to all of God's and thus our enemies. God has done all of this (laughs) to reveal his wisdom to his enemies. Our enemies. And thus receive glory. And look We still have a part of that. Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose, the eternal purpose or eternal plan of God. By the way, eternal purpose, God had this in mind before the fall. We always say, Jesus wasn't a second thought. The gospel, it wasn't, you know, a backup plan. It wasn't an emergency plan. But where do I go in scripture to prove that? Here you go. This was God's plan from the very beginning. Before the earth was created, before humanity was created, according to the eternal purposes 
Oh, I missed the passage. Um, that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sorry, I'm back up in verse 10. For the purpose that through the church this wisdom might be made known to God. Through the church, the body of Christ, you and I have a participa- are participating in essentially giving God's enemies a snub. Showing them God's way smarter than you and way better than you. And so this should affect how you and I should act. If there really is no more rivalry, if there really is no more reason for rivals and dissensions, and no more reason for my agenda to be put forward, and no more reason for me to try and get ahead and be above you and be before you, well, then we should strive for harmony. We should strive for unity. It should be, should be, I get it. It should be easy for us to put aside our personal preferences. Because in the end, I'm going to get everything. I'm going to get everything. Who cares what color the carpet and the walls are? Who cares if you have the drapes closed or the drapes open during the service? These are frivolous things. I know there's more important things as well. We're bastions of the truth. Don't compromise on the truth. But so many of our arguments aren't over the truth. They're over frivolous little things. Who cares? We shouldn't. And thus participate in revealing the manifest, the multi-sided wisdom of God. So let us go forth today in unity, in harmony. If you need to forgive someone for there to be peace and reconciliation and restoration, forgive them. Forgive them. If you need to forgive the church for upsetting you, for doing bad to you, or doing wrong by you, forgive the church. And let us display the wisdom of God through, specifically this morning, new life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for making me a fellow heir with Jesus. Thank you for making me a part of the body of Christ. Thank you for making me a co-inheritor of the world. I know I am not worthy, and nobody here is worthy, which makes us even the more, all the more grateful. Thank you that this was not a backup plan, a second thought. Help us to live up to that which we have now, and that which we will have in the very near future. May we start acting like Jesus' equal brothers, as if we're all twins born at the exact same time, as his co-heirs. Let us act like we do own and will inherit everything and rule with Jesus. Let us realize that the gospel, Jesus, is the great equalizer. And it doesn't matter where I came from or where, where, where anyone else came from. But that we are all first sons of Jesus. Amen.